You're listening to Knowing Faith, a podcast of Training the Church. This is Kyle Worley, and I'm joined by my co-hosts, Jen Wilkin and JT English. And here we are. Here we are. We're three episodes into season 10. Everybody, the, the trinity of episodes, you might say. Oh, uh, let's not. Let's not say that. Okay, great. <laughs> Take that back. Uh, JT, would you say it? Would you say this is the trinity of episodes? I wouldn't. No. Take it back. Okay, great. Perfect. Great. So I'm wrong twice. Fantastic. <laughs> well, uh, if you want to see me be wrong in public, you can come to the Gospel Coalition <laughs> National Conference. <laughs> this is our drop in for the gospel coalition. Hey, way to sell those tickets, Kyle. They're gonna love that. They're gonna love this promo for sure. Well, one of the places the three of us will be at uh, this year is in Indiana in September for the Gospel Coalition Conference. We're gonna be doing a couple special events there: a live recording of Knowing Faith, a panel discussion on training the church. We'd love for you to come hang out with us. Our friends over at the Gospel Coalition have created a discount code for twenty dollars off registration that expires on February sixteenth. So that's pretty soon. The code is Knowing Faith. You can register over at thegospelcoalition.org slash TGC23. Use the code Knowing Faith. You'll get $20 off. Come hang out with us in Indiana. I've never been to Indiana. Are you sure? Because one time we went to Minneapolis and you thought you weren't going there. So I'm wondering <laughs> if maybe you true. have been maybe I have to Indiana and you just don't remember it or yeah, were unaware. Yeah. Maybe you thought you were in Ohio. Yeah. I got to tell you, I always think Indiana is in Ohio. What? I'm sorry. No, I always think Indiana is in Idaho, and I because just I don't know. But I, I, don't I forget that Indianapolis. In I forget that Indianapolis is a state. Indianapolis it's, is not a state. It's a city. <laughs> oh gosh! <laughs> Wait, but Indiana is a state. Yeah, and guess what? A okay. polis is. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a polis wow. is that a was, city. And there's an uh-huh. Indiana polis uh, in uh-huh. Indiana. Yes. Perfect. Good. Yeah, guys, for the listeners, I love that was a little all, etymology shaming combo. That's always yes. yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I yeah. just want the listeners to know that was a scripted bit that I planned. Mm-hmm. That's in the show notes. Yeah. Um, so, uh, well, hey, today we're going to be talking about uh, heroes of the faith. Listen, let me start here before we get into it before somebody comes for us in the comments, we don't have that kind of audience, but just imagine somebody who's not in our audience sees this episode and like, I'm coming for you. Mm-hmm. The Lord Jesus Christ is the cornerstone of the church. <laughs> he is the chief shepherd of the church. Uh, the son of God, Jesus Christ is the only perfect human who has ever lived. Everyone else is flawed and broken. Um, we just want to acknowledge that by saying heroes of the faith, we're not saying superheroes or supermen or superwomen. We're not saying that any of the people that we've profited from, benefited from, been influenced by, that we would give a wholesale endorsement on everything they ever said or did or the way they lived every moment of their life. We're not saying that we're that we are now their hype men or hype women for their ministry careers. Hype folk. Hype folk, we are just, I want to give a big caveat at the top of this episode that if JT or I or Jen say we've been influenced by this person, we really profited from this book at a significant moment or time, that you should not read into that to say that we would follow them into Mordor, that they are, mm-hmm. th- that we think they're as good as the risen Lord Jesus, or that we are giving a tacit endorsement for everything they've ever said. Okay. We've if gotten you want to cancel out. us, please cancel us for something better than this. That's what Kyle's yes. saying. 
Thank you. Thank you. That's exactly right. We are happy to be canceled for matters of import essential faith. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) But not for this. Hebrews does say this, though. And I do, I want to say this now correspondingly. I think this is off neglected in our kind of everything has to be caveated. Did you say oft? Yes. Hmm. You like that or you do not like that? Go for it. Well, I, some, sometimes I do fancy things. Hebrews says this, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. So by doing this, we're actually doing something the Bible tells us to do. It says, do this. It says, remember these people, those who preached to you, taught you the word of God, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their mm-hmm. faith. So that's what we're doing. This is a remembrance episode, reflection. It doesn't mean that all the people that we're going to be talking about are perfect or they're gone. We're just trying to tell the story of their impact on our life. And that's how I want to spend the time. So let's just start, like jump right in. Who's in your, who is in this category for you? It could be heroes. It could be influential teachers. It could be people who were really significant. It could be people that had a lasting impression on your life, faith, teaching, living, thinking. It'd be somebody we all know. It could be somebody that only you know. I mean, just who is it? Where is it? How did they do it? Let's just start kind of pop. All right. So you'll hear mine kind of going in chronological order from early church and kind of moving to people who are influencing my faith still today. I'd say the first theologian that I, I've not read all this person's written, but it's it's one book in particular that he wrote. Athanasius is on the incarnation. It's a book I reread every Advent. It's so short and compact. It gives a great biblical theology and kind of, a, it's not it's not biblical theology and systematic theology, but just a great picture of the problem of, of sin God's plan to save Jew and Gentile through the person of Christ and in the in the in the miracle of the incarnation. Uh, he was so influential in early Trinitarian and early Trinitarian conversations in the Council of Nicaea. And this is a book that is not only uh, good for our minds; it's equally good for our souls. That's right. That's a good one. Okay, if we're starting old school, then mm-hmm. I will. Uh, I I see your Athanasius, and I raise you an Augustine. Ah, oh, was my next I, came across Augustine's Confessions fairly early on in my ventures into theology, and it was fascinating to me. I mean, I didn't, I, no one exposed me to early church thinkers, no one. And then here I am reading this person and realizing this is a person who has had a dramatic impact on the thinking of pretty much everybody else that I've ever read. So mm-hmm. that's one for me. What do you got, Kyle? Well, I'm going to move, I'm going to start diversifying how we're doing this, uh, but I'm going to go more personal right now. And I know I've talked about it at length, but I just could not, I could not, I couldn't say anybody before I talked about my mother and father. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. I mean, no, I know. I know. And I, I'm, that's not to try to put you guys on the other side. Cause you're going to, well, I'm getting there. That's why I'm too. going chronologically. Yeah. I'm getting there too, dude. Give us an old person first. <laughs> well, I'm going chronologically in my in actual lived life. life. Because nobody was there closer uh, outside of God <laughs> than my mother and father at the beginning. But yeah, I mean, I've said this so many times. I, 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 I'm sure the audience is tired of hearing it. But um, Scripture says to honor your mother and father that your days may be long upon the earth. My mother and father uh, have been and were uh, the most significant people to pray for me, to teach me how to read the Bible, to teach me how to study the Bible. Some of my earliest memories are waking up in the morning to my mom's lamp being on in the living room and seeing her with an open Bible and hearing her pray. Some of my earliest memories are going to sleep on Saturday nights, hearing my dad practice his sermon in the home office. I was surrounded by Christian truth. And before it was books, before it was anybody 
else, it was my mother and father. Mm. And they're very gentle, very kind, very grace-filled, very simple way of communicating to me what God had done. And that changed my life. Mm. Absolutely. That Mm. and the grace of God. So mom and dad, no doubt. lovely, Kyle. I can point to my mom. And honestly, I can point to my mom, my dad, and my stepmom in in various regards. My mom um, is the believing parent who made sure that we were in church and um, showed an evident love for God in everything that she did. I I think I've talked about on here, speaking of heroes with whom we don't agree, uh, you know, on everything, I would say that all three of the parents who have been a part of my life, I I, I have a wealth in, in the parents that I received. And I don't agree with them on everything. Right, and they don't agree with me on everything, which has meant that, uh, you know, with my mom, she's my primary spiritual influence. Even though at times we landed in very different theological places, which always pushed me to think, not just critically about what I was believing, but also compassionately about the way that other people were believing. And I would say the same thing is true of my dad and my stepmom. My dad has been an example to me. My my healthy relationship with him meant that. I walked straight toward loving God as Father, like no baggage, no Mm. baggage. And that's Mm. just a huge gift that most people don't get. Mm. And then uh, my stepmom has pressed me on the things that I believe in ways that have been really, really good and sharpening and has continually advocated for me to have a broad view of what it means to be a follower of Christ. Hmm, that's really good. Well, I'm going to call this not a different direction of diversification, Kyle. This is a parenthesis. We're going back to chronology in a minute, but since we're doing family right now, <laughs> uh, I'll jump in. I'll jump in with you guys. And I've said this on the podcast before. There is nobody who's taught me more about following the way of Jesus than my lovely wife Macy. Mm-hmm. Uh, she is one of the first Christians I ever met and had a relationship with. She'll never write a book. I don't think she's ever written a blog post. Uh, she's done a few podcasts here and there as a guest, but she's not a Christian speaker. She's not a influencer. She's just a faithful follower of Jesus. And I watched mm-hmm. uh, from the first moment I met her an embodiment of joy, an embodiment of just a desire to follow Jesus. There's few people in this life that I know who've suffered more than her mm-hmm. in terms of just family, illness, and death, and herself. And I've never once seen her waver. That doesn't mean she hasn't had moments of doubt. doesn't mean she hasn't had moments of weakness. But she follows Jesus with every fiber of her being. And uh, that's what theology is all about. Mm. Yeah, I love that. God has blessed each of us with tremendous spouses. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, Ministry partners and also like partners on the journey to learning who God is and good dialogue partners. Yep. Are we having them on the show again? We are, yes. You heard it here first, (laughs) y'all. Breaking news. Uh, We are doing a Married to a Theologian (laughs) 2.0. If you have been a long time knowing Faith Listener many, many years ago, uh, we did Married to a Theologian, uh, and we had all of our spouses in the actual studio where we used to record in person. Uh, So it is going to be... There, that was a pretty wild episode for me to try to get us through the break. And we were, on. we were and all now, on that one. Yeah, we were. Yeah, we were all on that one. And now to try to do it digitally over this. Jeff's going to be like, give me pray. that mic. I got some things. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, does anyone, does anyone ever call Jeff Jazzy Jeff? Uh, DJ Jazzy Jeff. Yeah. 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 I think you should start that. He would love that. That um, would make him feel cool. so seen. Perfect. That's how I'll kick mm-hmm. it off. Um, I'm looking forward to it. Kind of moving into just some other spaces like teachers for me, uh, the, the most formative influence on me outside of um, 
my mother and father were, was Dr. David Noggle, who was a, a longtime professor at Dallas Baptist University, where I was a student. He taught my first Christian philosophy class. I was actually a biblical studies major. I'd gone to DBU to study biblical studies. That was my major declared when I got there. I had one class. I had an introduction to philosophy with Dr. David Noggle, and I walked out of the room that day. I went to the registrar's office, and I changed my major to philosophy wow. right there. It was that incredible. Dr. Noggle has gone on to be with the Lord now. In my opinion, he's one of the most overlooked uh, authors, writers, thinkers of the last 20 years. Hmm. Uh, And for those who had him as a professor and him in person, everybody understands. It felt like you were truly lightning in a bottle in in a classroom with him. And I just, I feel like anybody that I meet that wants to engage in Christian thought Christian theology, Christian philosophy. I try to get them a David Noggle book as quickly as possible because too few know just how significant he was. He taught me, my parents taught me how to believe. David Noggle taught me how to think. Mm. I am the thinker I am because of David Noggle, unquestionably. Hmm. Unquestionably. And he was a robustly Augustinian guy. So you would, I mean, every anybody who profits from Augustine, Noggle was, he was Augustinian in flesh. Mm. Mm. Well, Kyle, you're throwing off the whole vibe here. I was going to go back chronologically, but now now we're going topically. So I'm going to, I'm going to follow your lead here <laughs> and go with, <laughs> go with teachers. I had a very similar experience my first few weeks on campus at Dallas Seminary as a THM student. I showed up as a preaching major, just thinking, man, I just want to communicate God's word. And uh, they had a they had a preview, day, not a preview, but like an orientation day when all the students were finally on campus. And one of the things they did is they would get five or six of you with a to have a lunch with a professor and just kind of get oriented to the to the campus life. And there was a guy named Jeff, Dr. Jeff Bingham, who is a church history professor mm-hmm. there. For those of you who know Jeff Bingham, he is like six foot seven. His thumb is longer than my face. He every <laughs> single day wears a blue blazer, a khaki pants, and he's just awkward. And I was like, that this guy, you know, this is the this is the epitome of a seminary professor. And I sit down with him and we're having lunch and everybody's asking different questions. And I ask him the question, you know, what's just simple, give us one piece of advice that you would give to a first-year seminary student. I'm thinking he's going to say, like, take, make sure you take this class or go to chapel. And he says, within your first semester, find a faculty member that you want to be like, that you want to follow, and that you want to embody uh, their way of thinking and their way of being. And I'm like, that's great advice. The last person on campus it's going to be is you. You know, it's going to be one of the <laughs> preaching profs or whatever. And I go to, I ha- but I had him. Like, that was, I think, on a Monday afternoon. I had him on Wednesday morning uh, for Church History 101. I was captivated. I mean, like, mm. left the class in tears. Did the same thing. Went straight to the registrar, changed my major to church history. Within two weeks, was in his office after, like, three lectures. And was like, it's you. I want to be like you. He said, okay. And he carved out time for me. We would have, you know, coffee every other week. And I could go into his office and talk about whatever I was thinking about. And he became, I just had a conversation. He's now a professor at Southwestern Seminary. We just talked on the phone two weeks ago. This is now, I graduated from there almost 15 years ago. uh, And we still have a relationship. And then I'll just mention briefly, Greg Allison, as a a guest of this, he was then my my doctoral supervisor at Southern Seminary. And I, I went to Southern, not to go to Southern, although it's a great school. I went there to be with Greg. Greg also then became my elder at the church. He was my home group leader. I ended up being in his son's wedding as a groomsman. And he like let me into his family for the three or four years that we were in Louisville. And I would say that's one of the best things about good teachers and good theologians mm-hmm. is they're not just great thinkers, but they let you in. They embody the very things that they're teaching you in their everyday life mm-hmm. and they let you see it. Mm-hmm. 
I love that. Dr. Allison's going to get a jacket. We need to get him a jacket. He'll be, he's going to make an appearance this season on a surprise episode that I'm not telling you guys about. <laughs> uh, he's just going to show up. And when he shows up, he will, I definitely, he definitely has the most guest appearances already. And this is going to lock him in. I think this will put him between regular episodes and our mini episodes that we do. I think this is going to put Greg Allison at 10 appearances really? on Knowing Faith. Yes. Wow. Which is really cool. Anyways. Shout out to Greg Allison. Okay, I have two uh, formative teaching influences that I will mention. One, nobody uh, will know, and another, all of you will know. The first one is my senior English teacher, Mrs. Wagner, Carol Wagner. And um, I recently, someone had heard me talking about her and the influence that she had on me, and they sent me an article. She was featured in our hometown magazine, and it was a story about her life, and she is a believer. I don't know that I knew that my my senior year of high school, but it makes sense. And uh, basically, she only taught English for like four years, and I got her because the Lord sovereignly ordained that I would get to be in her class before the foundation of the world. And <laughs> what she did was she First of all, she was one of those teachers who you were just, you know, completely sucked in the whole time she was teaching. And then she pressed me. I was a good communicator. Like, I always won the essay contests. I always, you know, could stand up and deliver a talk or whatever, and I wasn't afraid of a of a platform. And um, she would give us two grades on our, on our papers when we would turn them in our senior year. And one was the grade that we would get at Wichita Falls High School. And the other one was the grade that we would get if we were at the university level submitting the paper. And so she would give me wow. an A every time for the high school level paper. And then she would give me a C for what I would get in college. And that just made me so mad because I'm like, Mm-mm, no. And and that's exactly what she wanted, right? And she would say to me, hey, you're a good writer, but you're not as good as you could. Like, look at all the things you could have done better. And I just was not accustomed to that and I needed it. And so she pressed and pressed and pressed and she gave a, a love for language or she sharpened my love for language. And then she, um, she also pressed the way that I read uh, literature it was a really great literature course in addition to being an opportunity to learn to write better. And so um, she was foundational in the way that I understood teaching that just completely magnetized the, the, the listener and also that energized people to want to learn, not just to, you know, receive information. So there's her. That's the one you don't know. And then the one that you do know is the one that I bumped into uh, in my late 20s uh, when I first attended a Bible study at my local church, and that's Beth Moore. And I know that Carol Wagner's personal life is demonstrative that her character matched her competency. And it has been the absolute gift of my um, life that I have gotten to spend time with Beth and know that the same is true of her. This is someone who, you know, like, I saw her on a screen sitting in a room in my local church and thought, wow, I did not know that women got to teach the Bible hmm. or teach the Bible that forcefully. <laughs> uh, and uh, I went back uh, several years ago and found my first Bible study that I'd done by her. And in the introduction to it, it's her bio. And she says she is an advocate for Bible literacy in the local church. And my mind was blown. Like, I didn't remember that. I didn't remember that from 1996, you know, the first time I ever mm-hmm. saw her. And wow. so, um, again, this is an example where some of you are like, oh, cancel Jen, you know, because I don't agree with every single thing I've ever heard about Beth Moore. I read an article and I'm telling you, um, we're allowed to not have uniformity with people and and we are allowed to, and, and in the case of her, I would ask you to consider, as in the case with all of the big names that we might mention, Anyone who is given the gift of a long ministry, 
We'll have things they said 20 years ago they wouldn't say now. We'll have things that they said one way that they've learned to say better now. And so um, I, I, I pray that you will give me the grace of that if the Lord gives me 20 more years in ministry. Uh, and I would just ask that you would give that for everyone who has mm-hmm. a, a platform over a period of time. That's what the three of us want to do. Have you ever wondered what is God's heart towards you? In this noisy world, God's heart beats hard with love and mercy. But how can God share his heart with us when he doesn't have our attention? You're invited to spend 100 days discovering the beautiful, merciful heart of God with Overflowing Mercies, a new devotional by Craig Allen Cooper. The Lord is not ashamed of you or quick-tempered toward your faults. Each one of your weaknesses, faults, frailties, and failures does more to arouse God's love than to stir up His anger. If you could fathom in some small way how warmly God truly feels about you, the faintest grasp of His immeasurable affection would reduce you to tearful wonder and heartfelt gratitude. As God's mercies are new every single morning, overflowing mercies will continue to be a constant well of refreshing comfort, encouragement, and strength. It's perfect for personal quiet times, family and dinner table devotions, and small groups. Let this devotional help you get intentional, stay connected to God, and continue loving others. Order your copy of Overflowing Mercies, 100 Meditations on the Tender Heart of God today at moodypublishers.com or wherever great books are sold. What bridge is God calling you to cross that the gospel might go forth among the nations? Women like Lilius Trotter, Harriet Newell, and Sarah Hall Boardman Judson have indeed crossed their own bridges to get to the lost. Discover the stories of 10 inspiring female missionaries who changed the world for Christ. 10 Women Who Changed the World is seminary president Daniel Aiken's powerful tribute to these women who fulfilled the Great Commission. May we all follow in their footsteps. 10 Women Who Changed the World is available wherever books are sold. On that note of being able to, somebody who you've profited from, but, you know, also can feel like, oh man, there's like, you know, we're not on the same page on every exact thing. I mean, that's most of church history, right? Right. That's going to be most of the people throughout the history of the church. That's going to be most everybody. And three that stand out to me uh, that I've just, my my life has been indelibly marked by, I'll I'll say four, um, and I'll hit them in rapid succession, but uh, would be uh, Martin Luther, uh, specifically uh, Martin Luther's uh, commentary on Galatians. I read it whenever I was a junior in college, uh, front to back, and it was a game changer for me. But uh, I certainly don't agree with Luther. I'm not a Lutheran, <laughs> so there we go. Uh, John Calvin. Uh, there's not a there's not a like what we think of like a traditional historical theologian that's had a greater influ- influ- uh, influence on me than John Calvin. Uh, I read the Institutes of the Christian Religion between my freshman and sophomore year of college. I'd read an abridged version in high school. And John Calvin's work in the Institutes transformed me. His commentaries uh, have been a, a huge part of my devotional engagement with God's Word for a long period of time. Uh, so John Calvin. Uh, uh, and then the other two would be C.S. Lewis and Tolkien, who were both Catholics. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm not a Catholic, so... You're not? Nope. Shocker. Um, But the Lord of the Rings and C.S. Lewis is, I think, genuinely the person I could say, I've read the most C.S. Lewis of anybody I've read, and I read him the most. There's basically never a time when I'm not reading Lord of the Rings and I'm not reading something from C.S. Lewis. It's 
it's constant. Uh, so <laughs> I think in terms of my Christian imagination, my Christian imagination is certainly shaped by Lewis and Tolkien. I, I can't, I don't, I, I conceive of reality with uh, the imagination that they've shaped. So anyways, those would be my big four in the history of the church, so to speak. I know you guys had already kind of uh, dropped in a couple of yours throughout history. Is there anybody you'd add to that? I, we haven't talked about them yet, but I quote from them all the time. So the theologian that I've read the most of, just in terms of their corpus, is, is Herman Bovink. I just, he writes, the, the, the challenge of systematic theology is sometimes we define it only as categorizing what God's word says, like, organizing it. And that's not untrue, but it's more than that. It's interacting with church history. It's interacting with philosophy and the history of thought. And it's interacting devotionally. And I haven't found a scholar that does all of those things equally well. Uh, his his understanding of the history of thought, philosophy, uh, heresy, church history, biblical theology, systematic theology, contemporary philosophy, it's really hard to become a master at one of those things. And he is really, really good at all of those things and the way that he weaves them in and out in his Reformed dogmatics. And then also goes on to write something like The Wonderful Works of God in a way that kind of pastorally communicates those same truths is, for me, I, if I'm like having a bad day, I'll go read Bovink devotionally because it's just, it's so rich for me. Hmm. There you go. I'm scribbling down notes here because I keep thinking of more people. Um, but I would say that early on, I've, I've said this a lot on the on the podcast. I bumped into R.C. Sproul, and then I followed all of his footnotes. And but I listened to so much of his teaching that that had a huge uh, shaping uh, impact on the way that I thought about teaching. And then um, I found when I was doing the Sermon on the Mount study, which was it was a, a turning point for me in the way that I thought about the Christian life. I discovered Dallas Willard, and um, I discovered uh, F. Dale Bruner. We've talked about Bruner some, and when we were going yep. through the Book of Matthew, just two two writers who uh, I, I like Bruner because he was a um, I understand that he was a pastor in addition to being someone who wrote commentaries and did scholarly work. And so I like that his um, his commentaries are more, they're very pastoral in the way that they're presented. And then Willard, uh, he leans a little toward the whole contemplative movement. So people get super weird about when you say his name, but he was committed to the Christian ethic lived out. Like he believed that what uh, Jesus said we should actually do. And I know that everybody would be like, well, I believe that too. But I mean, you read the way that he talks about it and it just brought it to life for me. So those were so, and then um, James Montgomery Boyce has been another one who's been a major factor mm. in what I've decided to teach. Like if he wrote a commentary on it, I was probably going to try to write a study on it because I knew that he was going to give a lot of practical help there. Um, and then A.W. Tozier, A.W. <clears throat> Tozier yeah. and Arthur Pink, who, mm -hmm. I mean, the more I learned about their personal lives, the sadder I was, <laughs> but their writing yeah. has been so important to my understanding of who God is, the doctrine of God. Yeah. You know, it's interesting because if there's a place where we're going to get canceled, it's in this next question, which will be our last <laughs> question. So I, again, I just want to invite no, the audience. I already, I, already, I already opened myself up. I'm gone. You guys say whatever you want. Okay. They all canceled me well, a few minutes back. Well, here's the question I want us to end on. Are there theological voices you've had an evolving relationship with? I'll, I'll, I'll start here first. Okay because I'm asking it, and I don't want to put you guys on the spot. There are three that would stand out to me. I'll start with the oldest, and I'll work up to the most recent. Jonathan Edwards. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I was introduced to Jonathan Edwards in high, uh, late high school through uh, string of the religious effect, uh, the essay "Religious Affections." Uh, I then engaged with him in some of his philosophic thought on virtue in my undergrad, and was really kind of enamored with the idea of the Puritan pastor. And Jonathan Edwards was the figurehead of that kind of imaginative landscape. My relationship with Edwards has evolved. Uh, my relationship with Edwards has evolved as I've had a better understanding of the situ- of the, the historical situatedness in which he lived and over some of the failures of Edwards to not speak truth to the image-bearing nature of all people. Uh, I think that we have to grapple with this with a lot of people throughout the history of the church. Mm-hmm. You've got to grapple with it with Luther and his anti-Semitism. And with the Puritans in America, you have to grapple with their ability to bear witness to the glory of God with their simultaneous neglect for the glory of image-bearing man, independent of coloration, background, ethnicity, or race. Mm-hmm. And the Puritans, uh, as specifically the American Puritans, uh, they they failed. Many of them failed in this regard. And Edwards mm-hmm. failed. So Edwards, I've had an evolving relationship with. I don't uh, nearly champion him uh, or rely on his credibility as much. That doesn't mean I don't find anything to learn from Edwards. Mm -hmm. I do. I have, and I will, and I still do, and I plan to continue to do so. I know you're still going, Um, Kyle. you got two more, but I'll just echo what you're saying there. I wrote my master's thesis at Dallas on uh, Edwards' understanding of the penal penal substitutionary atonement. Uh, I also think that, oh gosh, I'm forgetting his name here. There's a biography on Edwards, um, George Marsden. Marsden, George Marsden. uh, Just has has a a biography on Edwards, which is one of my favorite biographies ever written. While at the same time, I have that same evolving relationship that you had and would would say exactly what you've said while still benefit from some of his thought. Hmm. Absolutely. It's possible to do both. (laughs) Um, I I would say the next person for me would be Eugene Peterson. Uh, and this is on the opposite side. Yes, I was this is a good very, mm-hmm. I was very, I came of age in terms of my Christian leadership at a time in which my little camp used Rich, uh, Eugene Peterson as a punching, punching bag. Mm-hmm. Um, he just was, uh, some of what Eugene Peterson was doing in the early 2000s was just ahead of its moment. Uh, and uh, and now, 20 years later, I'm like, golly, I was, I was really short-sighted. Um, I had a real, I remember when the message came out, um, it was a time in which it was like, okay, we got to talk about the Bible and its mm-hmm. authority and its mm-hmm. inspiration, its inerrancy. And, and the message I used, like a lot of people did, as a punching bag. And when you kind of retrace the steps on what Peterson was attempting to do, this is a serious Bible scholar with a real appreciation of the languages. Mm-hmm. He was not trying to replace uh, credible literal translations or word-driven translations. He, he just was trying to do something uh, that was a little bit more contemplative and prayerful uh, and uh, in the vernacular of the people. And the longer, the longer I'm in ministry— the older I get, the more I find him to be a tremendous help. Mm-hmm. And I was just wrong <laughs> with him for a long time. And then my last one would be one who's still living and working would be John Piper, of whom I am tremendously grateful. Desiring God was like a, it was the right book at the right time for me. It hit at a very significant moment in my spiritual walk with the Lord, and it opened up my vision to the wonder of the glory of God. Now, John Piper, for whom I am and have been and will remain 
incredibly grateful and a benefit. Like there are some things that him and I would just not agree on. And I, I guarantee you, he would be a more faithful, arti- a more persuasive articulator of the areas of our disagreement than I would be. And that's totally fine. I've had an evolving relationship with his work. There are some elements of how he thinks through the doctrine of God and particularly the way that doctrine of God can shape complementarian thought that just have changed for me. They've shifted. Some of the, the views that he has held and articulated in the past on female leadership and life of the local church or just we're in a, I'm in a different place than I was when I started engaging him 15 years ago. That's not to say there's nothing of value there. There's still tremendous value, not only in his past writings, but his present writings. It's just that's another one who was incredibly influential on me that I've had an evolving relationship with. So I hope the listener can take all those with charity and <laughs> generosity and respect because that's how I have offered them. So anybody, anybody that's on your list that I didn't mention there? Or that you haven't already mentioned? I would mention most of those. Uh, One for me is Carl Barth. It's been a really, I would imagine a lot of our podcast listeners either haven't heard of him or have heard of him and just don't know much about him, and that's fine. But in in kind of systematic theology circles, he's on the Mount Rushmore, whether you disagree with him or agree with him. I mean, he's just somebody you have to engage with, especially his work on church dogmatics. 20th century uh, theologian Carl Barth, he... I think I first, when I kind of entered conservative evangelicalism, he's kind of the boogeyman, like he's the guy you're supposed to be afraid of. And then you realize his historical situatedness is he is dealing with hardcore kind of text criticism, super far left deconstructionist in his context. And in his context, he he is kind of outed as the theological conservative. And he is nowhere nearly as conservative as us, but I start reading him and you realize, man, he wrote some beautiful things on the word of God. And as we read Church Dogmatics, uh, I read it in a PhD seminar. There's so much that I disagree with, but you almost weep when you're disagreeing with them because it's so beautiful, uh, and you're learning from him, and, and you're learning how to disagree with them better. And then it came out a few years ago that he had a long-standing, unfortunate relationship with a woman that wasn't his wife, and you begin to realize, man, how, how did that impact his theological perceptions and views? And you realize the, the fallibility and frailty of humanity, despite how they can write beautifully and wonderfully. So Carl Barth, somebody that I disagree with, more often than not, I think he was a beautiful yeah. writer, but also a, a broken man, and uh, just one of those one of those challenges. That's a really good one, JT. Um, and he's also a birthday brother with you and me. Let's go, <laughs> May ten, May ten, yeah. May ten. Oh my god, that's the true <laughs> Trinity. That's the real Trinity right there. <laughs> oh gosh. <laughs> Yeah, I would say one that I have um, given myself permission to move toward who maybe five or 10 years ago, I would have been afraid to tell anyone I was reading is, uh, and this is so dumb, like it feels dumb to even say it now, but it's uh, N.T. Wright. Mm -hmm. In the early days of my um, teaching ministry, he had been handed to me as a liberal theologian, you know, or or taken from me as a liberal theologian. And, you know, this is not to say, again, like I wouldn't necessarily land in the same place on every single thing, but you want a good conversation partner and someone who's a really, really good thinker, read him. That guy is something else. So um, (laughs) that would be one I've moved toward. And then I wouldn't say that I have moved away from some of these other voices, and I'm I'm not going to name them. These are contemporaries who, who I would say have moved away from me. And so it's one of the strangest experiences of my adult life to have discovered that some of the voices that were most formative for me and that continue to be places that I turn for help in my own teaching ministry, I'm going to oversimplify this, but they they kind of wish I didn't exist. Mm. And so that's hard. It feels 
strange to think I'm receiving help to help others grow in their faith from people who don't want me to offer that help. And I am the teacher that I am because of those those voices. And I take security in the strength of what I have to say because I'm drawing on the strength of what those voices have said. And so it's a strange sort of fatherlessness that I feel sometimes in the mm. in the church itself. Uh, and it's either that I am beneath their regard or that they resent that I exist. And mm. I can live with it. I, I, I know why I'm doing what I'm doing. I have a very clear sense of calling and purpose. Uh, but it's just odd. It's just odd. So that I, I just turned us in a downer direction for the end. So Kyle, let's see if you no, can well, dig I, it out. See if I'm, you can bring us to a I'm, high point. I'm going to take us, I'm going to move us to a funny note and then a positive direction. Okay, you're a pro. A funny note is that we did an episode way back when on generous complementarianism and somebody who we all respect, <laughs> uh, like everybody here loves and respects, sent me an email uh, letting me know, uh, like critiquing something I said in the episode. And uh, it was like kind of weird because it was like, oh my gosh, like you've taught me so much. Like, like I have such a high, like you don't know the kind of influence you've had over me. And it was, it was so strange because I remember I responded back to the email and I was like, I got to tell you, I'm incredibly honored because <laughs> I have such a high respect for you. Like, uh, so thank you for, thank you for not liking what I said because, uh, you know, uh, you're a person of conviction and uh, keep doing your thing, you know. Uh, I can't so, believe you're not going to tell us who it is. I'm not oh going to tell you who it is. <laughs> But it is somebody for it's it was somebody for whom like I genuinely would thank God for. Mm-hmm. And they were pretty hard in their criticism of what I said. <laughs> and I was like, I can't not love you. Um, so uh not be grateful for it. Okay, so here's uh here's how it land positively. We've mentioned a lot of people, some of whom we had very close personal relationships with, spouses, parents, teachers, some of whom we've had a distance relationship with, some of which we've had an evolving relationship with. But I think all of us would soundly say that the most formative place for our development, our discipleship, and our walk with the Lord is the local Mm -hmm. church. So rather than us, like, we need to end with this. How has the local church shaped you? And it doesn't have to be the church you're at now, although we're all grateful for the churches that we're at now, but just how has the local church, not a local church, but how how has the local church shaped you? uh, And where do they live in your kind of hall of faith? Well, I've had the enormous gift of being in two local churches in my adult life that did not see me as a problem to solve. And so that has been just massive. And and then in those settings, I mean, that's where I met my mentor, who continues to be just an enormous help to me to this day, Pat, and um, mm-hmm. has shaped everything from my parenting to my teaching style to um, my convictions around ministry in general. And, you know, even you think about the kind of preaching that you sit under each week and how that shapes the way that you think about what matters and what you're allowed to address directly versus what you avoid talking mm-hmm. about. I think about how indelibly I've been shaped by just the the great preaching that I've sat under for the last 20 some odd years. Um, and even before that, um, and, and in the local church, that's where you come face to face with whether the people who are modeling something for you really are those people or not. 
And so, yeah. I mean, that's, you know, that's these, the relationships between the, the three of us too. It's like, mm-hmm. I know you guys are not fakers. And so um, when I sit and listen to JT preach, I'm, I'm thinking, and I know he means it because I've been in his home and I know his kids and I know his wife. And uh, same thing with Kyle. It's why I sit there and ball at Kyle's installation service because I'm mm-hmm. like, I can't think of a better person um, to be taking on this responsibility, someone I would trust uh, and someone who I know in, in the quiet moments as well as in that front ones. So. Yeah, that's good. I uh, I was sick this past week <clears throat> with the flu. If you can't, if you, you can hear it a little bit, uh, and one of the things that I I didn't get to be with my church. I did. I was supposed to preach, and somebody else got to preach. And the thing that I missed the most actually wasn't the preaching, but it was just gathering with God's people. I mm-hmm. I think we we can forget um, the importance, and I'm not trying to go Hebrews ten on us, but I guess I am a little bit of just the local church, except for those that that might not that might end up closing or don't know local church can sustain, sustain itself forever. But the steady drumbeat of being with God's people each week, singing to God, reminding ourselves of our sin, rejoicing in the salvation of our Savior, and how, how that forms and shapes a soul, not over just like a sermon series of six weeks or two years, but 10, 20, 30, or 40 years, just makes me profoundly thankful for those pastors who like, they've been in the same place for 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, they're seeing a little bit of fruit here and there, but they're just the steady drumbeat of heralding the gospel to God's people. It's medicine for my soul. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know. I'm going to be able to say it. I, I, I'll just spotlight First Baptist Church Groves, my home church that I grew up in. The people there taught me how to serve like the body, how to serve each other. They loved and cared for one another. They treated each other as family. And everything I know about how to love and serve the church as a, as a family, brothers and sisters, I learned from blue collar people in Southeast Texas doing that with little and with lot. Uh, and my family was the beneficiary of that. And my faith was the beneficiary of that. I love the local church. Um, I know that you do as well. Uh, hey, listen, thank you for joining us on this episode. If, Like Jen said at the beginning, if you're ready to cancel us, just wait until we say something <laughs> that is cancel worthy. Yeah. And then just go ahead and do it. But uh, if, you, if you're taking away from this- But don't tell us. That would that, help. Like just, just cancel yeah, us quietly. Yeah, just, like it doesn't need to be a public privately, thing. Just, yeah. just stop listening or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> we don't need to be put on blast anywhere. Um, that would help. I've, yeah. I've got to. Yeah. <laughs> that, that, yeah, I appreciate that. Thank you. Um, if uh, if you don't want to cancel us and you want to find out more about us, you can go to Knowing Faith on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Uh, you can leave us a review over at Apple Podcasts. It does help the show grow its audience. Drop a question in there. We can explore it in a future Q&A episode. Don't miss our sister podcast. I do want to uh, just spotlight Confronting Christianity. That's co-hosted by myself and Rebecca McLaughlin. Uh, we've got some great guests on this season. We've had some great episodes already. We've had Is God Anti-Gay with Sam Alberry. What do I do with my doubts? Uh, we're covering topics this season like has science disproved Christianity? Is Christianity exclusive? Can Christians argue ideas? Uh, Rebecca and I have a lot of fun over on that show, and we think we're modeling a way where you can eat the meat, sprout the bones with a lot of competing ideas. So come check us out over at the Confronting Christianity podcast. In our next episode, we are going to be looking at the doctrine of salvation, specifically calling or effectual calling. So we hope you enjoyed the discussion. Grace and peace. 